0: Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to illuminate this text to us. Lord, we pray that again today, as you have done for thousands of years, you would use a crooked stick to strike a straight blow, that a straight line would be drawn, that we would see the majesty and the glory and even the mystery of our great God. Lord, would You, by Your Spirit, come and illuminate this text to us? For some of us, a very familiar text. Would You illuminate it, Lord, and once again make it fresh and life-changing? And we pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. If you're there in Ephesians chapter 5, you'll show me by standing. We'll, We'll give honor to God's Word as we read it together. Verse 31, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a book which several of you who've gone through premarital counseling with me uh, were supposed to read. However many of you have actually read it, that remains to be a mystery. But it is actually called um, The Mystery of Marriage. And so I I will not be bashful in saying that as I looked at this passage and in light of, of the reality of what Paul is saying... It seemed very appropriate to to look at that and say, you know, there is a sense in which there is a gospel mystery of marriage that Paul has been leading us to. We're kind of coming to the crescendo of his thought. It doesn't I think one of the cool things about this is, is that Paul can basically wax eloquent with this great, profound mystery, this deep theological thought, and conclude this chapter by saying, nevertheless. Let's be practical. And it just once again reminds us that deep theological thought is practical. That we're not to be people who are saying, oh, well, we're practical. We're not really concerned about all that other stuff. No, it's being concerned about all the other stuff that we ought to be concerned if it doesn't make us very practical. If you're a very deep thinker, but you're very impractical, you're not a very deep thinker. Think this is what I'm trying to say that Scripture's leading us to. Depth of thought leads to action which is practical and helpful and useful. Jesus was deep and yet very relevant, very real, very much in the lives of the people that he sought to serve. How can his servants be any less? So just that's a little side item, but here's what I want us to begin to think about when we look at this passage. I want you to think about this. There may be, I'm sure there's one person in this room that is the Bahumbug. But most of us love weddings. We love them. They're just awesome. And one of the greatest joys I've had of being a minister is getting to participate actively in weddings. Getting to see this beautiful bride, this guy who I've never seen look so good and probably never will see him look that good ever again in his life. <laughs> Notice how I avoided saying that about the bride. Just see the, the, the wisdom that's uh, being exuded up from up here. But the reality is is that there's something just amazing about weddings. It's just beautiful. Our hearts just get all caught up in the moment of seeing these two people in love, and everybody's there, and we're just so excited. And even more so, when we get to go to a wedding where we know that the participants are Christians. And we know that, that these two people are desirous to see Christ as the head of their home and to grow together in love, and we see all the pageantry and the beauty. And I've even had to debate some students as to why you ought to have a very beautiful wedding and reception. It ought to be memorable. And I hope today you'll understand maybe a little more why I feel that way. Marriage is something that is very important. It is a beautiful thing. And it is right for us to see it and to think about it and to love it. But here's the question I pondered this week, and I wonder if you've ever pondered it. When you go to a wedding, do you ever just really sit back and think about what you're seeing? Do you ever just stop and think, what's really going on here? Oh, sure, there's a a man, and there's a woman, and there's a minister, and there's all these other participants, and it's very beautiful and lovely. But do you ever step back, as Paul's asking us to do, and say, but do you really see what's going on there? Do you really see the point that's being made? Have you ever thought, I am watching a divine mystery displayed before my very eyes. I'm watching something divine, profound, glorious take place right in front of me. At a wedding, for a very brief moment, I want you to hear what I am saying and not what I'm not saying. For a very brief moment... We look into that intimacy which in this life only a husband and wife can ever really know. It's the one time where it's okay to look into that intimacy and say, look at it. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. You see this man open his heart wide. You see this woman reciprocate. And there's something amazing going on there. It's beautiful, and it's not just about those two people. We see both the human union on display, but there is another more profound, more enriching truth. It is the one that makes the other possible. What we're seeing there actually makes that union we're looking at really possible. So that drives us then to look at where it all started. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I've said this last week, but I want you to continue to think about it. Paul has had that passage in mind almost the entire time he's been writing. Ephesians 5, as it relates to husbands and wives. This has been the crescendo verse in his mind that he's thinking, okay, this is how all this other matters. And to some degree that ought to really profoundly affect us to think that Paul has that verse and all this comes pouring out of that verse. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to the woman and the two of them shall become one flesh. And somehow Paul gets all this, a man shall... She'll love his wife as Christ loves the church, and a wife shall respect her husband just like she was respecting Christ. And all that comes pouring out of, in his mind, this verse. And that's not to say there aren't other things, but this verse has been the big picture that he's been looking through. It's been the lens, if you will, as he looked out at marriage, and he looked out at how it could be helpful to the people in the Ephesian area. As he looks at it, it, both, it does two things for us. One is it shows the connectedness of what he's just said when he said that we are members of his body, but it also points us forward and points us back. It points us back to this reality that God created human beings for a purpose, for a reason, and there's a reason why we need to see how marriage displays that. Here's the, here's the big picture. God's intention in marriage was to display union and communion between two people which ultimately showed His union and communion in Himself. I want you to think about that. God created a man and a woman to be united together and to commune together to show how the Trinity operates because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in perfect union and perfect communion. And God created in His image people to show forth and declare the reality of that truth. Now, I want you to think about that because when we think about what's happening in a marriage and why I said that if you don't get the profound mystery, you'll realize you'll never be able to really see the reality of your union and communion together. It's this. At the fall, what happens? What happens is this, a man and a woman who were supposed to be brought together in union and communion, become enemies. This woman that you gave me, this woman that you, God, gave me, she listened to that stupid serpent and then, like an idiot, I ate with her. And now look at me, this woman. Do you see? God goes on to tell us later on in Genesis chapter 3 that the woman would have a desire for the man, but he would rule over her. That she would spend the rest of her life being a usurper, and he would be a crusher. So when we look around us in society and see, quote-unquote, women's rights movements and other such things, it shouldn't shock us why those things happen. Even when, at some points, they're right on points. Because, see, there are times when those movements are right because, remember what I just told you, men's role becomes ones to dominate and crush And so throughout the rest of history, what do you see? Usurping, crushing. Usurping, crushing. That's not at all what marriage was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about union and communion as displaying the beauty and the glory and the richness of God. And so Paul rightly in this passage, as he talks about these things, points us back. And says, look, this is the reality that marriage was made for. For a man to leave his father and mother and to cleave, unite himself to a woman so closely that literally their whole lives become wedded together. That you can't tell where one ends and another begins. Not, not literally, obviously, I hope that when you meet Jane, you don't feel like you're just meeting me. That'd be kind of boring, trust me. I'm not that exciting. Jane is pretty, pretty cool. But there's a sense in which when you are around us, the hope of, of a godly marriage is, is that those two people, what really makes them tick, what really makes them move, what really seems to emanate from them as a couple, seems very the same. They seem to be about the same thing no matter how it may be displayed in hobbies, in activities, in personality, there seems to be this unity of mind and purpose in all those multifaceted areas of life they may be called to. And that's what they were supposed to be made for. We know that Adam... Because he did not see God as the focal point of his relationship with Eve, because Eve did not, see, did not keep her eyes focused there, they lost the opportunity to experience real love, to have real knowledge, and to experience real intimacy. And see, there's something, men and women, that all of us when we go to a wedding, there's all of us who have experienced getting married, there's something about, as we do that, we say what I'm after here is real love, I want to know this person and be known. I want to experience intimacy. And yet, I don't. I'm scared to death. There has never been a bride that I've ever talked to that was not absolutely petrified about the wedding night. And if you just think it's because of being intimate physically with this man... Come on, women, we all know it's way more than that. That may be a part of it, but it's, it's the fact that I'm basically trusting this human being with myself. I'm suggesting that this man will treasure me and value me and love me and share himself with me. And what we often find in marriages is what? that we marry this person and when all the veneer of dating, courting, whatever you want to call it is removed we're just left with ordinary people who go to ordinary jobs who do ordinary things and lots of times we just find ourselves very vacuous it didn't do it everything for me it was supposed to this was supposed to be the thing that made me whole. And see, what I want you to realize is is that marriage in and of itself was never supposed to be the thing that made you whole. What it's supposed to do is point you to the thing or the person that makes you whole. And this is why so often we struggle in marriage. is because we keep expecting this other person to fit me in a way that will make all the other problems of life go away. I'm cleaving to this person. I'm leaving for this person. Why doesn't she meet every expectation I could possibly have? Because she wasn't designed to. She was designed to help you pursue that greater thing that your marriage is supposed to be putting on display. The other thing I want us to do before we leave here is, is that Paul is in some real sense giving us an interpretive grid as to how we should look at the Scripture. And I just want to say this very briefly, but I want to say, it, I want to say this really matters. You cannot read Genesis any longer as just an Old Testament history about the Jewish people and where they came from. You can't just read it that way. If Moses was alive today, he could not quote this verse in the same way as he quoted it or wrote it when he first penned it. And here's the reason why. Because what Paul is telling you is the greater reality, the profound mystery has showed up. It's not just just saying, and this is how you should live, it's also saying and this is what it was all designed to point you to. You can't ever go back and read it the same. The whole notion that people get into, well we have to get back and read this in its original context. Good idea, you want to hear how it was originally said, but you can never stay there. And your lens can never be fully equipped that way because if you do, you fail to see what Paul's telling you in the next verse. This is a profound mystery there's something incredible going on here and it's pointing to something you could have never anticipated if all you had in your Bible was Genesis 1 and 2, you would be hard-pressed to get that that verse points you to this mystery. But now you see it and you can never read it the same way ever again. You can never read the Old Testament the same way ever again. You have to read it in light of Jesus. Always. Every verse, every chapter, has to be read in light of Jesus. And while that's sort of a side thing, I want you to realize how profound that is. Because it will transform the whole way you read your Bible. You have to read it in light of, but Christ has come. The mystery's been made known. It's been revealed. And it's important for this reason, because then we need to look at, where is all this headed? Where is this taking us, and this is where Paul then steps in and says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we looked at Paul saying, look, this is where it started, but he's now coming in this verse and saying, and this is where it's headed. Now, you might not get that right off the top because you say, well, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, but here's the reality. The fullness of Christ in the church has not happened yet. Has it? Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like you're in heaven right now? For starters, I'm still standing up in front of you talking. The first thing about heaven is you won't have me up here anymore. It'd be something way better than me. You'll have the preacher himself, the glorious preacher, the great preacher who loves you profoundly. And doesn't disappoint. And the tragedy is I can do neither of those things to the depth that he does as far as love. And certainly I have and will disappoint you. And He never does. And he never will. And so what we're headed towards is a full revelation. There is coming a day when we will see Jesus. We'll see him. There won't be any mystery anymore. It will be right there in front of us. There he is. Do you see him? Do you see those wounds? Do you see that glorious being who laid down his life so that we could arrive here safely? Do you see? That revelation is coming. And Paul wants you to say, this mystery is profound. It's amazing. It's incredible. And the very reason why it's profound is because when you go to a wedding... What it first and foremost should say is, one day, unlike what we do in American circles where we have the bride walk down, one day it's going to be us standing at the front and the bridegroom is going to rip open the curtains of heaven and he's going to step in and say, Honey, I'm home. We have no idea. How awesome that's going to be. And we're going to be like little children who, when their daddy comes home, we're going to be like Aaron and Amanda. And I guarantee, I don't have to go to the Steele's home, but I can assure you, when Ken comes home after being gone for two or three weeks or a month, those kids are bowling. At, there are nothing standing in their way. There's no toys. There's no nothing. It's daddy's home. And see, what I want you to get is when you look. At a wedding, what you ought to see there in some sense is the reality that one day, someday, Christ will make the fullness of His promises real and permanent. And it will be tangible in a way I've never been able to experience until then. The second thing is, is that we are headed towards completion. See, one of the things that marriage in the garden was supposed to do is, Adam had God... What he lacked was the other part which completed him. There's a real sense in which in marriage we have ourselves and we have this other person as we get married. and So we have those two parts, but what we lack is the full presence of Christ in every sense of the word. They're with us. And there's a sense in which what we're looking forward to is a reality where we will be fully complete. A perfect man, a perfect woman, without any flaw in character, personality, body, or soul. No flaw. No imperfection. I have no idea what that's like, but I I hope almost more for my wife than for myself what it will be like when she and I finally can have a conversation and I'm actually not the flawed punk of a person that I'm capable of being. To her, she'll actually get Dennis... Undefiled. It's not just about me getting to have a conversation with her. It's about her finally getting to have a person that really is capable of doing what he was called to do. And that's to love her immeasurably. There's a sense in which we will not be able to do that. We will not be able to love each other. And I'm not really interested. There's some of you who will say there's no marriage in heaven and that's fine there's others who that will argue and I can point you to them there are other reformed theologians that will argue oh absolutely this relationship carries on and I know what you're gonna do you're going to immediately go to Luke and say but Jesus says in heaven we're not talking about getting married in heaven we're talking about marriages that happen here that continue on it doesn't matter to me I don't really care one way or the other this is one of those issues for me that I just say look I just want to get to see Jesus face to face Whether I'm still married to Jane or whether we're brothers and sisters, whether we're still, it really doesn't matter to me. It's just the fact of getting to be with this woman that I've lived 20 plus years around and with. Perfected. And I get to relate with her. Perfected. Completed. And we actually get to have a conversation the way we were intended to converse, which we will never have in this life. Completely. And that's true for every single one of you as well. Lastly, what we're headed towards is consummation. And I want you just to listen to Revelation 19, 6-9. Nine. But I want you to hear that you cannot look at marriage any longer as just some interesting phenomenon that's supposed to happen between men and women, and they have children, they, they live together, they try to be good to one another, they generally listen to what it's ultimately pointing to. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. See, there's a sense in which we need to get our theology straight. We're not married yet, we're betrothed. We're waiting to get married, we're longing for it. And I want you to think about how your life would be different if you started thinking about yourself being, I'm getting ready to get married. For those of you that have done this in the past, what was that like? You're full of anticipation. You were doing all these things that needed to get done in preparation for that great day that was going to happen. Don't you see? That's what the whole rest of the New Testament is saying. Live like this, be like this, do these things because what are you doing? I'm getting myself ready to get married. I want to be ready to get married. That's how we're supposed to live, that's where we're headed. He goes on to say this, so that you don't think I'm just making that up. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage lamb of the feast has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is what? The righteous deeds of the saints. What is it that I'm supposed to clothe myself in? I'm supposed to do everything I can to say I want to look and be Just like Jesus. I want to be a bride who's ready. Now what woman in her right mind puts on her wedding dress and goes out to feed the hogs out in the back? How many of you take your invitations and you basically run them through a shredder before you send them out? Are you getting the picture? See... Our lives are supposed to be a dedication to God saying, I'm readying myself for my beloved. He's coming home soon. I don't know when, but He's coming home soon. And I want to be ready. I want to be bathed. I want to be dressed in beautiful clothes. I want to be ready. And that's Why we show up on Sunday mornings. It's part of that getting ready. So, how should we live in light of it? Well, this will sound like a huge departure, except that if you were to look at the whole rest of the New Testament and understand this, and we even know the rest of Ephesians 6, at least a large portion of it's going to be dedicated to this, is this. How do we live? We see where we started. We see where we're headed. How do we live in light of it? We need to see and believe that Satan hates Jesus. He hates the church. And he hates your marriage. Why? Because your marriage displays the very reality that undermines his mission. Your marriage is supposed to be a testimony to the greatness and the glory of God. That's what your wedding's supposed to be about. That's what your lives are supposed to be about. And that's certainly what Christian marriage is supposed to be about. And at every turn when the, a marriage, when a Christian marriage is being gospel-centered, it's being Christ-focused, it's being filled with love, do you understand that what's being displayed there is, this is the death of Satan and his minions. Your end is sure. Your end is secure. And that's another reason why we ought to be about living holy lives in our marriages. It's because we're at war. And there is one who hates your wife. And he hates your husband. And he hates your Savior. He hates Him. And for those of you that have ever seen... Lord of the Rings, get that image of Gollum when he talks about hating the hobbits. I hate them! I hate them! I hate them! That's how Satan feels about us. He hates us, and he hates our marriages. Hates them. If we have that in mind, then what I want to say to us is that we as husbands and wives will take, like Paul says, our marriages seriously. This is not playtime. It's serious business. We cannot be passive. We have to cultivate them. We have to tend them. Now, I'm sounding really serious. Part of the way we cultivate and tend our marriages is to not be very serious and somber. It's to walk and bask in the sunshine of God's grace so that we show love and joy and happiness. Because we found the source of it. And we want to pour that out in the lives of the other person. But see, we ought to be serious about that. I need to be serious about seeing Jane and I happily growing towards God. I need to be serious about it. It can't just be something I hope happens. As a church body, it ought to matter to us how our marriages are going. And guess what that means? That means that you've actually got to get to know one another enough to where you can actually be useful to one another in your marriage. If all I ever see is the veneer of, oh, we're doing great. Everything's wonderful. Well, dude, this is just such a great husband. He just loves our children. Oh, Jane, she's just the cat's Meow. She's just always the wonderful cook, and everything's just perfect. It's just wonderful. And see, I hope that to some degree that's true. But we all know it's not all that. And see, we actually need one another so that we can actually understand what's really happening, that we can actually encourage, that we can actually confront, that we can actually comfort one another. Because we need to take seriously what's going on. Our goal for marriage as a church is to turn ourselves and each other and the world around us to Jesus. That's how seriously we need to be about it. We need to constantly be provoking one another to turn to Jesus. I said to a lady the other day, I said, you know, if you've ever seen the movie My, My Big Fat Greek Wedding or whatever, whatever the title is, I think that's right. You know, you'll know that in that, in that movie, there's the uh, mother, the grandmother, kind of the matriarch of the family, and she says to, the, says to her daughter who's getting married, honey, the husband is the head, but you're the neck. Now, you might take that and go, that's just horrible, but let's see if we can't redeem that statement in a positive way. If a wife is the neck, then what should she be turning her husband to look at? What should she be turning her head to look at? And what kind of covenant ought the head make with his eyes so that what he looks at is what his wife needs to see? See, that's what we ought to be about. That's what we're supposed to be about. Is people who say and know that others need Jesus. So here's the conclusion then I want you to think about. The hope of the Christian life is seen in marriage, and here's how. Christ left his father. You do realize that, right? Think about Genesis chapter 2. Christ left his father, he left the glories of heaven, and he cleaved to the woman so closely that He died for her. He took all her shame. He took all her nakedness. He took everything that she had and He took it upon Himself. And He gave her all that He had. His righteousness. His fame. His glory. His beauty. If we keep that in mind, men and women, if we think about it's not just about the vows we made to one another and before God. It's more than that. We have the very gospel mystery laid before us every time we wake up next to that person and say, Jesus cleaved to me. He left His Father and cleaved to me so that I might be wedded to Him and might experience the joy of wedded bliss. May the Lord make that so in our midst. That would be foremost in our minds as we go forth from this place today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and ask that you would once again delight our hearts in the reality of who you are and what you have done. And as we come to this table, Lord, would you once again display to us the goodness and majesty of your grace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.